If you're with us this morning and you uh, do not have a Bible, there are men that are coming up the aisle right now with Bibles, and uh, just get their attention by raising your hand, and they'll get a Bible into your hand. We really do want you to hear the Word of God, but also see it with your own eyes, and so they'll be glad to help you that way. And this morning you'll be fairly lost without... Uh, without most Sunday mornings you would be, but especially uh, this morning. Ezekiel, Old Testament, uh, chapter 38. And we'll read a few verses uh, by way of introduction. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaw, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all of its troops, the house of Togarma from the far north with all its troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be visited, and the latter years you will come on the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountain of Israel, which had long been desolate. They are brought out of them, they were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops, and many peoples with you. And thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. And here's their evil plan. You will say, I will go up, speaking of Israel, against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited, and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba indeed, Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions will say to you, Have you come to take plunder? Have you gathered your army to take booty to carry away silver and gold and take away livestock and goods and to take great plunder? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for all of the things that it does in our lives, the big things that it accomplishes, the fine-tuning that it accomplishes. Lord, we want the entirety of our thinking and our feeling and our doing, Lord, and our spirits to be absolutely dominated by the revelation of your word, especially as we live for you in this time in human history. And so we pray for a very active work and presence of your Holy Spirit centered upon your word now as you would teach us from your word 
these important truths. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In our study of the life and the ministry of Jesus, we now, in chronological order, we now would officially be beginning uh, Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew, Jesus gives what is known as his Olivet Discourse. And it is called that because he delivered it to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. But before we get, uh, and Jesus in that Olivet Discourse gives his kind of insights into what the Bible calls the end times of the last days. But before we get into his teaching there, I thought that I'd like to take a couple of weeks addressing a couple of subjects to help lay a foundation prior to the uh, studying that that will help us to understand his teaching a little bit uh, better. And one of the passages we want to study is Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And it is a passage that is uh, very familiar to many of you uh, related to Bible prophecy, but it's not familiar to everyone, and it's not familiar even to the majority of, of the body of Christ. And um, so we want to make sure that everyone has an understanding of this subject uh, as, as we're living in this unique time in human history. One of the reasons that the teaching of Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 is so important to me is because in light of what this world is like all around us and uh, uh, what is uh, happening by the day, the potential for it to unravel in many, many different ways, I want every single Christian that attends this church to be able to look at current events, or those of you who aren't Christians yet, to be able to look at current events and be able to process it through a biblical grid. Otherwise, this world is a very, very scary place to be in the middle of if we don't understand how active God is in, in all of it. And, and so this is what we, we want to look at and to understand that Human history is not what it oftentimes appears to be, certainly with those that don't know the Lord, where it's often we look, can look at it and say, it's just this kind of random chance uh, series of out-of-control events. Uh, but it isn't that. God is in control of this world. He's in control of, of human history. And we need to realize that human history is not going to have the end that any one person has in mind for it. Uh, human history is not going to have the end that any single nation or confederation of nations or all of the nations of the world, if you put them together, uh, are going to designate for the world. This world is going to have the end that God has determined it to have. And it's a very good end. God is, is, is going to bring human history to his wonderful conclusion. And history really is his story, not just related to Christ, but related to all of history. He is that sovereignly involved. The prophet Ezekiel wrote this prophecy 2,600 years ago under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And at the time that he spoke it, the children of Israel were without a doubt in just the deepest, darkest, most discouraging chapter in all of their uh, history. Very, very low, 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 low point. 
They had been defeated by the Babylonians in that day. And they had uh, been not only defeated by the Babylonians, who uh, ultimately became a world-ruling empire of that day, but they had so irritated the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar was forced to come back to Judah and conquer Jerusalem three times. He was so ticked off by the time he got there the third time. I mean, he was fried. And it was customary for the, for the Babylonians when they would come in and they would conquer a section of the world and they conquered that, that entire part of the known world in those days, they would displace the population. So they would conquer a nation and they would take the native population out of that nation, put it in another part of their empire, bring a foreign population into this section of their empire, and in that way it would keep the people destabilized and unable to uh, produce a united revolt against Babylon's rule. The Jews had so irritated Nebuchadnezzar that he didn't pick them up and plunk them off into some outer section of the Babylonian Empire. He brought them back to Babylon. He said, I'm going to put these people right under my nose. And he brought them back to Babylon. And as the children of Israel looked at how, because of their own sin, they had, lost, they had forced God to judge them and they had lost uh, their nation and that they had now become captives to this world-ruling empire. And if you had looked at Babylon in those days, and it was on the ascension in those days, you would have said, these people are going to rule for hundreds of years. We will never be free again as a people. We will never have an opportunity individually to return to the land of Israel. We will never be a nation again. And the weight of all of that weighed on the Jews at the time that God causes Ezekiel to give them this prophecy from his throne. They had lost virtually all hope of ever returning to Israel or ever being a nation once again. And in chapters 37 and 38, Ezekiel prophesied that Israel would one day be gathered back into the land of Israel and become a nation once again. Not that they would return and be a divided kingdom as they once were when they were taken into captivity, first the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians, and then second the, the southern kingdom of Judah taken uh, ultimately by the Babylonians. But when they went, came back into the land and became a nation again, they would be one unified country uh, again. And then in one of the greatest miracles in human history... 2,600 years after the prophecy was given by Ezekiel, on May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation again in human history, fulfilling a prophecy that God made through Ezekiel and that the Jews in the world had waited 2,600 years to see fulfilled. And as students of the Bible... We must never lose our awe over the existence of the nation of Israel in the world today. It is unparalleled in, in human history in that no single group of people in history have ever been displaced from their native land 
and then been taken and cast out into all of the other nations of the world and been in that condition for 2,600 years without losing their culture, without using, losing their national identity and being absorbed by the rest of the nations. God protected them for 2,600 years and then He provided the land for them to return to. Every time we read or hear of Israel, we ought to think immediately of Ezekiel's chapter 36 and 37 and realize we have seen an incredible miracle. It's a miracle that we're watching in the Middle East. I have books in my library, in my office, written by great men and great women who wrote of these things, wrote these books, these commentaries, uh, these books of theology before 1948, and all of them were looking longingly and speaking longingly of the day that Israel would be a nation once again. We have seen what they longed to see. We don't have to walk by faith related to those two chapters in their prophecies concerning Israel the way that they had to walk by faith. We see the miracle, we hear of the miracle every single day. What the Bible refers to as the last days or the end times refers to those days on the earth that will immediately precede the return of Jesus to rapture the church and then uh, Jesus' second coming seven years uh, later. So when we look at Israel, we realize, as we'll see in a moment, that their very existence reveals to us that we're in the last days and, uh, and that not only are we in the last days and to view world history that way, but we are also to recognize that our God is in control of this world and in control of human history. In chapters uh, 40 to the end of the book here in Ezekiel, we have Ezekiel's description of Israel following Jesus' second coming during what's known as the millennial uh, kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth which is centered uh, in Israel. In the chapters in between that we look at this morning, chapters 38 and 39, Ezekiel describes a great military attack or an invasion that's going to be launched against the nation uh, of Israel and uh, that clearly intends the destruction of Israel occurring sometime between when it is reborn as a nation and the time of Jesus' second coming. In other words, the period of human history that you and I are living in right now. That's what's being described in these two chapters. The period of time that God has given us to live for Him and know Him in this block of time in human history. And as we're going to see... This great battle is not the battle of Armageddon which occurs at Jesus' second coming, but it appears to occur seven years earlier which would put it immediately before, immediately after the rapture of the church and we'll talk about the rapture next week. In other words, what God gives us in these two chapters is the geopolitical situation of the Middle East and surrounding Israel in the last days. And I want you to notice in chapter 38 that these events are twice referred to as having to do with the last days. Notice in verse 8, After many days you will be visited. 
In the latter years you will come into the land, and so forth. Notice in verse 16 uh, of chapter 38, You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. And so we're talking about the geopolitical uh, structure of the world in the last days. The, the two chapters basically break down into three sections. There is before the battle, there is the battle itself, and then there is the aftermath of the battle. Let's get into the before the battle as we read those uh, verses as a part of our scripture reading. Notice Israel's attackers. The main player uh, is described uh, in verse 2, and the Lord addresses a man by the name of Gog. It is either a formal name or it is, refers to a, a title that this person holds, uh, like a czar or a pharaoh or a president or a prime minister, uh, something like that. He is the leader of a nation which is referred to by its ancient name by the name of Magog. And Magog is the ancient name uh, for the land north of the Caucasus Mountains, we know it today as Russia. And sparing me having to uh, agonize over verse 2 and somehow uh, do what, what you know, many people try to do, and I don't put it down, but the, he's spoken of as the Prince of Rosh, and they say it refers to Russia, and Meshach refers to Moscow, and Tubal refers to, to Blusk, and, and all of these things can attempt to, to be, be developed. But the nation is unmistakably identified and further identified within the text of of chapters 38 and 39. Notice in 38, chapter 38, verse 15. Then you will come out from. Uh, then you will come from your place, out of the far north. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a great army. Notice in chapter 39, verse 2. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. Buy a globe, buy a world map, open it up, run a line straight north from Israel, and you will virtually bisect uh, the city of Moscow. The nation to the far north of Israel is unmistakably referring to modern Russia. Additionally, we're told in verse 4 that at the time of this invasion, that this nation to the far north will be a major military power. The description of its weaponry in verse 4 indicates it's fabulously armed. I mean, it, it lacks nothing in terms of, of weaponry and armament that it, it, is, it brings into this battle and uh, attempt to invade Israel. And Russia is fabulously armed for war. In fact, Russia not only supplies enough weapons for, to arm itself, but in the year 2007, which is like the late, most recent date you can get on these uh, issues, it sold over $8 billion worth of weapons uh, to the rest uh, of the world. It helps to arm over 80 nations around the world. And it is so reckless in who they're willing to arm 
so unconcerned about the instability that who they arm with what they arm introduces into the world community that uh, um, uh, Condoleezza Rice declared in September 2008, Russia's international standing is worse now than at any time since 1991. When you look at how Russia's foreign policy and how they handle their uh, who they sell arms to, how they handle their natural resources of, of oil and natural gas. Uh, it defies uh, anybody that would sit down and look and say, um, these are the decisions that someone that wants to be a good global citizen would do. Israel, I mean Russia does the polar opposite. Everything that they do geopolitically at the moment seems intent to destabilize the entire world and allow them to move into that destabilized condition uh, for their own kind of selfish gain. And we've seen it even with oil and natural gas principally directed toward uh, Europe and the former Soviet republics. We see it in terms of weaponry all around the world. When the Soviet Union uh, fell and uh, all of these former republics spun off and became their own country and Russia became kind of its own country again. And uh, they, they kind of went on their good behavior. I'm, talk, I'm not talking about individual Russians. I'm talking about a government. I'm talking about a, a world system, a nation. I wouldn't want to be judged individually by my government at the moment, by the way, and uh, hardly ever, you know, in recent history. But so we're talking about a government here. And, and you, uh, you, when the Soviet Union was dissolved, Russia became uh, wanting to further and, and become softer, be kind of a kinder, gentler nation, and was kind of wooing Europe and all of these kinds of things. Everybody looked at Ezekiel 38 and 39 and says, they've been turned into a teddy bear over there. I mean, how they, they're in such disarray, they're so poor, uh, they can't even feed their own people, much less feed a military and uh, rise to these kind of heights. And yet in that time, the thinking in terms of, of the Russian leaders and the wealth that they have in terms of natural resources and then feeding it into military, they have become a very strong nation in the world once again and intent upon being the biggest and the best in, in, in the world. And so everything, when people were kind of backpedaling on Ezekiel 38 and 39 a number of years ago, everybody has felt safe to return there. Why is Israel so attractive to Magog, to Russia? Why would, why would it be attractive to them? Russia has always longed for a permanent warm water port. They are in a cold part of the world. And Israel sits right on the beautiful Mediterranean and you can get boats in and out of there any time of the year that you want. You don't have to bring in ice cutters or anything uh, to, to do that. So it's a wonderful asset. What Israel owns in terms of unbelievable wealth in what is in that Dead Sea, the minerals that are in the Dead Sea, the fertilizer that is in the Dead Sea. You can get articles, and I could quote them for ten minutes for you this morning, on how 
the enviable position of Israel today just on the basis of the fertilizer that comes out of the Dead Sea. The world around the world, you've got to feed this world. And people are feeding and they're developing and not all countries are handling their natural resources of their soils and these things properly. And they're just getting food out there. They're depleting the nutrition value of the soil. And people who have the minerals and these, the, the, you know, the potassium and these things that can make the fertilizers, this is a, a modern gold. And Israel has billions and billions and billions and untold billions of dollars worth of just fertilizer in that Dead Sea. Also, just a number of months ago, many of you might have read it, it made the front page of many American newspapers where they have discovered three natural gas reservoirs just off the coast of Israel in the city of Haifa. Israel is so publicly excited about the potential of those fines. They're not preliminary fines. These are advanced kind of uh, exploration of these things. Excited that they will now for the first time not have to buy energy from their enemies in the region and potential enemies, but be able to not only supply their own energy needs, but then sell it as a resource uh, or as a source of money to the rest of the world. Russia and this confederation of nations will look at Israel and there is wealth and value that they see that they simply want to snatch uh, away from them. I think it's also important to note Russia's long history of anti-Semitism. Russia's persecution of the Jews is well documented in history. It's legendary And their persecution of the Jews has not been limited to the persecution of Jews who have in the past and are now caught behind Russian borders. The persecution of the Jews has also, by Russia, has also included their long history of arming Israel's enemies in the region who have sought Israel's destruction since they were born into the world in May of, of 1948. In 1967 and 1973, when Egypt and Syria and Jordan united together to, in an attempt to wipe Israel out, to drive every Jew into the Mediterranean Sea, That was the intent of that confederation of nations. They were armed by Russian weaponry that had been supplied to them by the Russians. And to this day, they keep Israel's worst enemies, including guerrilla groups and terrorist groups, well-armed and thus a constant threat to Israel's safety. Russia has for a very long time been on the wrong side of the promise that God gave to Abraham way back early in the book of Genesis. I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. And this battle may well be God's payback time to the the nation of Russia and 
her allies. Well, so far, so good. We've got a major military power to the north of Israel with a long history of anti-Semitism and arming Israel's uh, enemies. Notice Magog's allies are listed uh, in this attack in verses 5 and 6. The first mentioned is Persia, ancient name for modern-day Iran. You can't read the news without hearing about Iran. It's Iran, it's Iran, it's Iran, it's Iran. Uh, Ahmadinejad, what's he saying next? What's he doing next? You can't watch any newscast today without hearing about Iran and without specifically hearing about its endeavor to develop uh, nuclear weapons. And that's all the more alarming given the fact that its leader, Ahmadinejad, has called for the complete destruction of Israel. Publicly. Nobody does that publicly. You can dream that. You can say that behind closed doors. But to say that as the president of a nation, to say that publicly, you force Israel to take you seriously and do something about it. It is a public threat and it's a public calling out. People that look at that from the West and they say, oh, it's just political rhetoric. They do not understand religious convictions on anyone's part. Europe is not a religious area with religious convictions. The United States of America, in terms of the people in power, are very quickly losing an understanding of what people do and how uh, cherished their religious convictions are. And so they listen to this and they just think it's a bunch of rhetoric and it's not when it comes from somebody like this and especially from uh, Islam, his uh, religion of choice. The close ties between Russia and Iran today, very well documented. Russia not only supplies Iran with much of its weaponry, but you may or may not be aware that Russia is uh, actually the ones uh, doing the building of the nuclear plant in Iran. They are building it. Uh, for the Iranians, this thing that's in the news every day. Adma Minajab, he uh, attended a summit in Russia the last week of September of this year, so just a few weeks ago, and USA Today reported a senior Russian diplomat hailed uh, his visit uh, as evidence of strong ties between Russia and Iran. Both China and Japan have repeatedly thwarted the United Nations Security Council, often led by the United States of America, by demanding to put an embargo of some, with some teeth in it upon, Israel, upon Iran to get them to turn away from this uh, nuclear program. And time and time again, the Russians have led the way to thwart that, uh, that attempt. Russia and Iran are scratching one another's backs at the expense of the rest of the world, and they're not blinking. In case you haven't noticed, they are not afraid of anybody. They're not afraid of Europe all put together. They're not afraid of the United States. They're not afraid of the United States and Europe put all together. They're not afraid of anybody. They're not blinking in terms of what they're doing and what their goals are for the region. Now, ultimately... Almost everyone believes that this is going to force Israel to attempt to take out Iran's uh, nuclear uh, de- development by uh, military strike uh, sooner or later, probably within the next few months. You cannot have uh, 
a nation like the Jews. You, you can say whatever you want about me. You can do whatever you want to do about me and that kind of deal. You come after my kids and my grandkids. Now you're going to force me to do something about you. You cannot threaten a nation to annihilate not only the adult population, but every single Jew in the country, and they're supposed to just sit there and watch you gain the capacity to do it and then hope you don't mean it. They'll force Israel to, to take out these facilities, at least attempt to do so. It appears they will be somewhat successful because they survive enough to be able to be at this point in, in human history, as we're describing it here, to be ultimately invaded in, in this way. It could be taking out those facilities in Iran will spark this whole thing to take off. We don't know. But it, it has a possibility uh, for it. And so one day, probably very, very soon, you're going to wake up, have your quiet time first. Got to have a quiet time before you can process the news. Then you might turn on your TV or turn on the radio on the way to work or somewhere, go on the computer, and you will see that last night Israel did, and you'll see the smoke and all the thing. They will be forced to do that. That's in our future. He also lists as, a, as an ally here uh, a country by the name of Cush in verse 5. It speaks of modern-day Ethiopia and uh, northern Sudan. Uh, describes a place called Put in verse uh, 5. Uh, that's a, an ancient name for modern-day Libya. In 2008, Libya and Russia signed a civil uh, nuclear uh, cooperation deal paving the way for a stronger relationship between Russia and Libya. Basically, Libya wants to do the same thing Iran is doing. That's why Iran is so dangerous. If you don't stop Iran and you didn't stop North Korea, you can't stop anyone now from developing uh, these kind of weapons. It's a very, very dangerous kind of world that we live in right now. There's a lot at stake. We should be praying for our leaders. So, Libya is following Iran's lead in all of this. The BBC reported last year that Russia had agreed to cancel 4.5 billion of Libyan debt. How do I get in line for that? So they, they've agreed to cancel Libyan debt, 4.5 billion in exchange. You don't get something free from the Russians. In exchange for major, major contracts for Russian firms and the two countries signed deals on energy cooperation, military assistance, and construction. Mr. Putin of Russia said Libya, quote, is oriented toward the most active cooperation with Russia in all areas. Wikipedia states Russia regards Libya as its strongest ally in the Arab world, both politically and historically. Obviously, in the light of this, Libya is firmly indebted to Russia and under Russia's thumb. Notice in verse 6, it talks about Gomer, and that's not where Gomer Pyle was raised, uh, old joke, uh, but Gomer and Togarma, those are the ancient names for modern-day Turkey. Turkey is a Muslim nation, that uh, has a secular government. Recent developments in, ter in terms of Turkey are very interesting since our last kind of prophecy uh, update. And last time I said, watch Turkey. 
Turkey has for years endeavored to become a part of the EU, the European Union. And the European Union continued to put one hurdle after another after another in front of Turkey for Turkey to go through to ultimately be deemed satisfactory to become a part of, of Europe. Turkey did them one after another after another. Everything that Europe demanded of Turkey, Turkey provided to Europe. And then they voted within the last year, 18 months in the EU when they voted, they uh, voted against giving Turkey permanent status. That was a slap across the face uh, of the Turks. We're talking about proud people, proud nations. These are proud cultures and civilizations. And so Europe did what everyone knew Europe had to do. Because number one, Turkey is not a part of, of Europe historically. But the thing that the Europe was afraid of is now you have a Muslim nation that will now become a means of funneling huge numbers of Muslims from the Middle East into Europe and further instability. So they said no, dogmatically said no, what everybody said that they would probably need to do. What it has done in Turkey is it has made them realize they hoped that their future was aligned with Europe. They realized our future is not aligned with Europe because they're never going to let us in. So what Turkey has done is it's looked back to its roots, back toward the Middle East. In fact, right after that happened, there were articles in newspapers in Syria and other places where Syria reported the affront that this was to the Turks and reported that the, the Turks, Turkey is looking now back uh, to uh, improving its relationships and its future toward uh, the Middle East. And so all of that's happening. In fact, Syria was very quick to jump on the development and call a meeting with the representatives of Turkey and also with Iran and propose to them that there would be a Turkey, Syria, um, Iran kind of uh, triangle of power in the Middle East. But this is where Turkey is and, uh, and so continue to watch Turkey and continue to watch its, its move back toward uh, the Middle East and, and all of this. The common denominator between all of Russia's allies in this attack is that they're Muslim nations. And, and, they, and as a result, they possess no particular fondness for Israel. But remember that Ezekiel prophesied this 2,600 years ago. He prophesied, at the time that he prophesied this, it, uh, it was, it, it, Islam would not even come into human history out of somebody's mind uh, for a thousand years. You could have looked for a thousand years at this prophecy of Ezekiel and look at these countries and where they are and they've never gotten along and what in the world could unite so diverse a group of nations. And we sit here this morning and we look at it and we say it, it's very easy to see how it could be united by a religion, a religion that uh, in some interpretations teaches a, a great hostility toward the Jews. Now notice in verse 13 the international uh, hand ringers related to this invasion. It speaks of Sheba and Dedan, which refer, refers to modern-day Saudi Arabia. When they see this invasion occur, they do not join the invasion. But they do nothing to stop the invasion. 
Militarily, they stay out of it completely. Their only engagement is once the invasion begins, they verbally engage and they protest that it's going on. What in the world are you doing here? It's interesting that Saudi Arabia and other uh, Arab nations, even Muslim nations in the Middle East, have no great fondness for Iran. They view Iran as getting too strong and uh, for its own good and for the good of the region, and so they would like to see it be taken down a notch or two. But Saudi Arabia here is, when this attack occurs, uh, they will not only not be a part of it, but they will certainly not come to the defense of of Israel. Talks about also the merchants of Tarshish and the young lions thereof. Go back to Genesis chapter 10. Tarshish, are, the, Tarshish was a descendant of uh, Javan uh, and, and Tarshish uh, the people of Tarshish, they settled in Greece, and so it could be a reference to Europe. And so the European community, seeing this attack upon Israel, a verbal protest, but an unwillingness to go to arms to protect Israel. Europe is no friend of Israel today if you follow any of this. You saw the, the uh, hijacker and the Pan Am flight and the, the terrorist was released from the Scottish jail and sent back to Libya for the final weeks of his life and all. And all of these things that are going on because of Europe's uh, dependence upon Middle Eastern oil and, and other complications. And so Europe hasn't been a strong friend of Israel for a very long time, if, if ever. And so their protest will be verbal but not military. It's also interesting to note the nations which are conspicuously absent from being mentioned, ones that you would think would join the invasion but don't. And some of them are more easy to explain than others. You would think if this was written 2,600 years ago that the lead nation that would lead in the, the destruction of the Jews and the displacement from the land would have been Egypt. They're not mentioned here. And we live in a day today where Egypt has a peace treaty with the nation of Israel. There is no mention of Jordan or the Jordanians here. Why? Because in the day in which we live, Jordan, the, the country of Jordan, the government of Jordan, has a peace treaty with Israel. A little bit harder to explain in terms of their absence is Syria. Syria is not involved in the attack. And, uh, and you wonder why they wouldn't be given their you know, frame of mind toward uh, Israel at the moment. It, Syria provides cover and sanctuary for a terrorist group by the name of Hezbollah that is very much bent on the destruction of Israel and displacing them from, from the land. And uh, so they, the, Hezbollah operates very freely within their borders and what might happen in terms of Syria not in engaging in the, t in the attack, if you talk about some sanctified speculation, is that somewhere in the middle of all of this, before all of this unfolds, that Hezbollah launches an attack upon Israel once again, forces Israel to move into Syria, as they did a number of years ago, but not decisively enough, and then decides to set, Israel back or set Syria back militarily and infrastructure-wise 40 or 50 years. That could happen. Just a couple of years ago, we, it was actually for the kind of strike that was done in Syria, it's amazing that it wasn't front page news, but it wasn't front page news. 
But for those that watch these kinds of things, everyone took notice of it. Syria, just two or three years ago, was developing a nuclear plant just like these other folks. And they were well on their way, uh, by rogue nations, on their way to developing that. Israel knew about this in terms of their intelligence. They let it develop to a certain uh, point, then brought jets in and bombed the site, and they bombed it with, uh, the, with the kind of missiles and weaponry that were so sophisticated that they left a gigantic glass crater in the earth. It was so hot it turned the desert sands into glass, and they wiped the thing out. And so uh, something could easily happen between Israel and uh, Syria between now and this attack. We notice that Iraq isn't mentioned here, and you would think that they would be mentioned. But we live in a time in human history where we know that Iraq is currently fully occupied with rebuilding its own nation. And as you look at this prophecy, it is an exact description of the geopolitical world that you live in every day. It's an incredible prophecy. It describes the world you wake up to every day. You go to sleep to every day. This time in human history is unique in human history in that it is the first time that the world has aligned geopolitically exactly as we see it described by Ezekiel here in chapters 38 and 39. It has never happened before and it has happened today. Now notice the battle itself and we'll be very quick through this and we'll get you out of here. Notice in verse uh, beginning here in verse uh, uh, 14. A little bit earlier than that, in verses 7 through 9, this confederation of nations is going to attack Israel, um, and they're going to come in like a storm. I mean, it's going to be with overwhelming force. Verses 10 through 12, their evil plan is, that, is to launch a surprise attack upon Israel. It does not appear that Israel will provoke them into this. This truly will surprise Israel when, it, uh, when it's launched. Then notice what God does in the middle uh, of, of all of this. He said in verse uh, 14, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? And when you come out from your place, out of the north, uh, far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a, a mighty army, you will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud. They'll come in just like a storm coming in uh, to cover the land, and it will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in your defeat, O Gog, is what it's saying before their eyes. God is actually behind the whole thing to bring judgment on these nations, to humble them, to hamstring them so he can continue his prophetic plan on the other side of this battle. That's another sermon for another day. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days, by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them. And it will come to pass at the same time 
When Gog comes, comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. This will make God so angry, it'll, it will be, it'll show on his face, no hiding it. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath, I have spoken. God then engages in the battle supernaturally in the form of an earthquake. What is actually kind of interesting to know is there, we, there is nothing written here that indicates that Israel puts their military together and goes out and fends off this invading army. The indication is, is that God takes care of the whole invasion on his own. So he says, Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. And so God is going to bring a, an earthquake to disorient the invading uh, forces, to make it difficult for them to do what they're doing. An earthquake so great that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth, shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. That will be the greatness uh, of the, uh, the earthquake that God will bring. He, he's going to defeat them by natural uh, forces. I will call, he says, uh, significantly for a sword against Gog throughout all my mountains says the Lord God every man's sword will be against his brother as this invading force invades Israel and it turns out not to be the cakewalk that they thought it was going to be but it really begins to uh, demand something hardship of them. It begins to look like this may not be something that they can win. Their coalition begins to splinter and to fall uh, apart, and they begin to fight one another. So all this is interesting in the light of a recent article in September of this very year by the Council on Foreign Relations concerning the relationship between Russia and Iran which quoted an expert as saying, for both parties, cooperation is driven as much by fear and mistrust as by opportunism and shared goals. So as soon as they hit this supernatural opposition to their battle plan, they mutiny and they begin to fight one another. You've got Islam, non-Islamic people together in a, in a confederation and, and whatever happens here, they start to turn on each other. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence, that is disease, bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops and on the many people who are with him flooding rain. Those of you who are military, your ex-military, students of military history, we've got amazing technology, we've got amazing vehicles, we've got amazing, amazing, amazing. But rain, flooding rain, can just about stop anything in its tracks, especially when it gets added to what gets added to in the very next two words. God then involves himself with a flooding rain and great hailstones. You say, this is an army. How can the hailstones affect them? In the book of Revelation, during the great tribulation period, during one of the plagues, God unleashes a hail upon the earth that is going to weigh a talent. 
that is just slightly less than 100 pounds. Ever been in a hailstorm where each piece of hail weighs 100 pounds? How would your house hold up? How would this building hold up? How would a temporary military structure hold up? How many jets or helicopters can you fly into that, that kind of, of, a, of a situation? So God steps in and then he adds fire and brimstone. And it may be just God's fire and brimstone. Some people look at it and say, well, it may speak of Israel launching a, nu- a nuclear attack here at this point. And, uh, and that's what happens here. God may do the whole thing on his own. And thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself um, and I will be and sanctify myself and I will be known in the eyes of many nations and then they shall know that I am the Lord. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountain of Israel. Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. God just disarms them like this. Boom, boom. They're disarmed, the whole army. Now people look and say, I've got a bow and arrow. What's Russia going to do? We're going to go back to the uh, caveman age or something? They're going to go into... So Ezekiel describes warfare according to what was the standard of warfare in those, those days in terms of the technology. Literally, in, in the Hebrew, the word that is used for bow there, it literally means launcher. But in the, only, in the ancient world, the only launcher you had was a bow for bow and arrows. But it's a launcher. It could be a missile launcher. It can be a launcher for any kind of weaponry. And then it talks about the arrows. Literally, in the Hebrew, it means a piercer. It means a missile. In those days, it meant, that meant an arrow. That's all that a, a missile could be. Today we know missiles can take very different forms. And you shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all of your troops and the people who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and the beasts of the field to be devoured. You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. And I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands, and then they shall know that I'm the Lord." So these countries, they send this great force against Israel. It's going to be a cakewalk. I already bought stock in the company that's going to get a hold of those gas fields and, and uh, the fertilizer and all that kind of thing. And, and so we're safe. Uh, they're going to go in an easy victory. God takes out their militaries and then he holds the nations who launched the military responsible for it. And he brings the same judgment uh, upon those nations uh, also. And so I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. And then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Surely it is coming and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. And then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out, set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the javelins and the spears, and they'll make fires with them for seven years. The, the, the booty in terms of uh, fuel, in terms of weapons, will be so great that Israel will be able to live off of uh, their energy needs will be met by what it is that they capture 
from these uh, invading armies. And they will not take wood from the field nor cut down any from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons and they will plunder those who plundered them and pillage those who pillage them, says the Lord God. And it will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by the east side of the sea. So they think they're coming to invade Israel. They're coming to their own funeral. The bodies will be buried on the east side of the Dead Sea, modern-day Jordan. The bodies will be so great, the graveyard so great, it will obstruct travelers because they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore, they will call it the Valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, it's going to take seven months to bury all of those bodies. They'll be burying them in the land in order to cleanse the land. And indeed, all of the people of the land will be burying them, and they will gain renown for it in the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. They will set out men of regular, uh, regularly employed. It will be their full-time job to bury bodies for seven months. With the help of a search party, to pass through the land and to bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will then pass through the land, and wherever anyone sees a man's bone, he'll set up a marker by it. Then the professional buriers will come in, and they'll bury it in the valley of Hamangog. And the name of the city will also be uh, Hamanah, and thus they shall cleanse the land. And then God goes on to explain in the, the, uh, that the uh, animals of the world in that region are going to be invited to come in and uh, they're going to be able to eat all of these bodies and to feast upon them. And then in verses 21 through 24, God declares that following this battle, there'll be no more disputes on, in anybody's mind over Israel's right to be in the land uh, just because he displaced them because of their sin during the Babylonian uh, captivity. And then in verses 25 through 29, uh, it takes us to the thousand-year reign of, of Jesus that begins at his second coming when they will recognize him as their Messiah. Unbelievable what we're seeing with our own eyes these last days as Christians. You know what really makes me sad, other than that I'm way out of time? What really makes me sad is the world lives like these chapters don't even exist in the Bible. Just blindness thing is just headed headlong into what it's headed into, and God has given us prophecy, history in advance. Israel will never cease to exist as a nation, it is an amazing fulfillment of God's prophecy. Geopolitically, I want you, every time you see the news, I don't want you to look at the news and everybody on the news, they can add them to the hand ringers. I mean, they're so anxious and so worried and we would be anxious and we would be worried. Nations are worried about the condition of the world right now. How much more individual people but for us to be able to look at the newscast that we're looking at and to be able to look at it and say, the God that I serve who is the one who sovereignly controls history, He is the one I see His fingerprints in terms of what has happened. It doesn't make me anxious. It makes me, in the words of Jesus, it causes me to look up and realize that my redemption draws nigh. Jesus' return is at the door. And so this is 
intended to produce, not just to move us from fear, but to move us into hope, into anticipation, expectation, and being active in our Christian lives in these last days. For those of you, and and it means a lot to me, I've kept you a long time. You know I've kept you a long time. Don't tell anybody else how long I kept you. Oh, it's second service. No problem. Who else are you going to tell? (laughs) It means since 1980, I have processed the news of this world through the grid of God's Word. It's why I am still in my right mind, more or less, and able to talk to you in finished sentences. I want everybody to be able to do that to be able to look at what we're seeing that is so alarming and for our hearts to be marked by peace rather than fear. I want that for you. And that's why I invest the time in it this morning. If you don't know Christ today, what are you thinking? What are you doing? I know people, you can come in today and it's the first time you've heard about your need to be saved through Jesus Christ. The same God who has has written all of this ahead of time, history in advance, speaks of your need to be saved. Those that know Christ, they, they have life. Those that reject Christ not only don't have life, but the wrath of God rests upon you. Today's the day to be saved, to be on the right side of this God who loves you and wants a personal relationship with you and has provided it as a gift so you can receive it just for the asking this morning. And there are men and women up in front immediately after the service who'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship this morning. I urge you to begin that relationship with this beautiful, sovereign God of the Bible today. Take advantage of the opportunity. Let's stand together and let's pray. And if the worship team comes forward, that would be great. Father, we just stand in awe of your prophecies. We stand in awe of the fact that we weren't born in the 1700s or the 1800s or the 1500s. We'd have been okay with that. But you've called us to live for you and to serve you in an amazing time in history, a history that you're in charge of. We just freshly surrender our lives to you right now, Lord, in light of the hour. And we want our lives to be as fully in your hands for you to use in our neighborhoods and in our home and our school and workplace and our service to you kingdom-wise all around the world as fully as all these other things in the world are, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of being able to see and to know what we see and we know. And I just pray, Lord, that this passage in our time in your word would cause every single one of my dear brothers and sisters here today and those that don't know you yet today, Lord, to be able to look at today's events and have peace with the knowledge of the fact that you are God is in control of all of this. It's headed toward your end. I pray, Lord, for each one that doesn't know you today, that today nothing of the spiritual realm or the physical realm would hinder them from coming forward and beginning that relationship with you. I ask it, we ask it, in Jesus' name, amen.